Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Say the word immigration today and the political implications are both ugly and controversial. On the plus side, a survey just out this morning says that a significant majority of young people in the U.S. see themselves as citizens of the world and not just citizens of America. 58% feel that the U.S. is no better than many other countries in the world. It is against this backdrop of hope and acceptance that my guest Susan Eaton explores real people doing real work to fully realize the power of immigration and integration to make us stronger in what certainly now seems like our broken places. Susan Eaton is the director of the Sillerman Center for Advancement of Philanthropy at Brandeis University's Heller School for Social Policy. She's the author of the previous book, The Children in Room E4. Her newest work is Integration Nation, Immigrants, Refugees, and America at its Best, just out from the new press. Susan Eaton, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's good to have you here. In looking around for some of the stories that that you tell in Integration Nation, some of the positive things that are going on with respect to immigration, talk a little bit about how difficult or, or not difficult it was to find these examples. Are these isolated cases or is this, this a trend that, that we're beginning to see? I think it's definitely a trend that we're beginning to see for sure. Uh, and these are places that are have really been overlooked for to a very large degree by those bigger stories that focus on hatred and, you know, conflict, even violent conflict and governments who are trying to restrict the movement of immigrants or encourage immigrants to uh, to leave. Um, in contrast, you know, there's a multitude of different programs and policies that I could have chosen uh, to look at and where people are welcoming immigrants, working alongside, collaborating with immigrants, and working to make life um, easier, more prosperous, and more joyful for for immigrants in the communities where they live. One of the ironies of all of this, I suppose, is that in a world in which globalization is growing constantly, in which we have more and more free flow of ideas and money and products and, and everything else that is flowing so freely around the world, that at that same time, immigration and integration has become such a flashpoint. There, there's a certain irony in all that, I suppose. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's related, too. I think that as we, as immigrants uh, begin to influence the communities, increasingly influence the communities where they've settled, the states where they live, and the nation as a whole, there's a certain kind of fear that comes along with that among some people who fear that change, who don't see themselves reflected in that change, and maybe they feel irrelevant uh, or threatened by by those kinds of things. Um, But you're right. I mean, I think the, one of the common themes that runs throughout the stories that I wrote about in my book is this feeling of, of that this change is a good thing. It's exciting. It's enriching. Um, it's beneficial, not only just on an, in economic terms, but in really deeply human terms, too. Um, it adds a kind of, you know, concrete benefit in the terms of dollars and more tax revenues and all those kinds of things that, you know, policy people tend to focus on, um, but it also creates this vitality and this um, energy and new ideas and new kinds of relationships and understandings that grow up as a result of, of demographic change that's um, 
you know, borne out by, by immigration. It's interesting that we hear a lot of lip service paid to the idea of immigration making us stronger, immigration and diversity being a positive force in the country, both historically and contemporaneously. And yet these are the stories that really give, give voice to that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we do talk about that in very broad terms. And so one of my hopes was, and I think that that is an impulse, um, you know, that I think a lot of people actually do believe that and they feel that that is true. But I also thought it was important to give, you know, some concrete examples of of how that works, um, how it plays out in communities. You know, when you embrace that value, what does that look like in public? and I think that there are some compelling, uh, interesting lessons for us in, in understanding that. And to talk about some of these stories, let's begin with, with the Utah story. Sure. It's interesting. A lot of people like to start with that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that is, that is too, one of, one of my favorites, so it's hard to choose a favorite. Uh, so... Utah, as many people may be aware, is historically one of our whiter states, especially when you put it against the backdrop of um, nearby states that have been historically much more diverse, like Nevada and California. Um, uh, Utah is also a place that has a very uh, strong influence of the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, around t- not long after the uh, Utah hosted the Olympics, um, I believe that was in 2004, they needed, because of the Olympics was cited there, the state needed improvements to its infrastructure, and they also needed new buildings built. And this job availability, this new job availability, attracted immigrants from other states who had been, who had their origins in Mexico. Some of it was new immigration right from Mexico or Guatemala, but most of it were um, people who were already living in other states moving to Utah for this new work. Uh, But what happened then surprised people in Utah is that many of the immigrants who moved there for the work decided to stay. They found work in uh, booming recreational uh, businesses and new um, businesses that were made possible new service industries that were made possible because of the improved infrastructure that they had contributed to and because of the Olympics and all of the economic benefits that flowed from that to a particular place in Utah. They decided to stay and raise their families there. And so as a result, communities that had been historically white, that had very little um, very little experience with immigration. Suddenly, Latinos were living in these communities and were attending to the, attending the public schools. And so, educators there did what a lot of educators do: is they began to separate students who were not quite fluent in English, who were speakers of Spanish. Um, from the students who were native English speakers. So what that ha- what happened was that was the Latino students in kind of one part of the school, one set of classrooms, and white students in the other. And so the educators began to notice a couple of things. One, the Latino students weren't really... Um, weren't really uh, performing up to the level that the teachers thought that they would be able to. They were also missing out on important content knowledge because so much focus was placed on them quickly, quickly learning English. And also the school was missing a kind of connectedness. The school climate was strange with, you know, kind of two parallel universes operating. And so educators did some research and they learned that um, what are called two-way immersion programs had been successful 
successful in many other places, such as California and Massachusetts and other places. And they decided to start these programs in which English-speaking students and Spanish-speaking dominant students would come together, they would learn each other's languages, and they would also learn their material, say, history, social studies, in two languages. And as a result, they saw improvement in performance for both groups of students, but they also saw a kind of new vitality in the schools, new relationships being formed, a kind of cohesion that was beginning to take place within the schools that hadn't been there before. Parents beginning to get more involved and feel more welcome in the schools. Um, All kinds of things as a result. And what was most interesting about the Utah story was the fact that the state, at the same time that the educators on the local level were realizing the shortcomings of their model that segregated students, the state was trying to um, bring, to to advance more language learning in in all of their um, schools. And so the state made funds available for school districts to begin programs like the two-way immersion programs, but also programs where students were able to learn Chinese or be able to learn in German. Um, a whole range of um, different offerings were made available. And how did the community adapt to this, the broader community? Well, initially, I mean, the, in the couple of places that I looked at, initially there was some apprehension, some fear, and some doubt, and some resentment. Um, but that quickly dissipated, and now the once you know communities were really engaged and their questions were answered, um, and and then they saw the results and the good things happening in the schools. Talk a little bit about the degree to which this would could in fact become a model for other communities. Oh yes, it, it definitely could, and there. I mean, and two-way immersion programs with Spanish-speaking kids and English-speaking kids, or Portuguese kids and English-speaking kids, aren't aren't new. I mean, these weren't invented in Utah, but no state has supported them as fully as the state of Utah has, which is traditionally a very conservative place. There are a lot of states now state education uh, departments that are visiting Utah and looking at the schools and trying to figure out how they could transfer this model um, to their school districts. What impact did it have on the English-speaking kids? Uh, well, it didn't. It certainly didn't cause anybody's, you know, test scores to go down. Um, but it does seem. But there is plenty of evidence um, out there, just in the general literature, that being bilingual confers huge benefits um, and transfers over to other learning learning skills and and memory and you know has a host of benefits beyond just being able to speak another language, which is pretty great in and of itself. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the North Carolina story. Sure. So in North Carolina, um, in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s, um, law enforcement officials and advocates for the growing Latino community there noticed that um, Latino residents, particularly undocumented immigrants, were becoming victims of robberies, often armed robberies. And so out of concerns about public safety and also the targeting of undocumented immigrants, they began to figure out that the reason they were being victimized was in large part due to the fact that the the criminals basically knew that undocumented immigrants did not have a place to store their newly cashed 
paychecks, the money, their money. Um, and so they'd often be walking around with, you know, huge amounts of, of money right after cashing their, right after cashing their paycheck. So one of the solutions that was devised turned out to be a highly successful one with benefits um, that rippled throughout the community. And that was to create a community credit union. And again, these are not new things, but um, North Carolina has the fastest growing kind of collection of these community credit unions that was specifically targeted to assist the Latino community, the Latino immigrant community. Anybody could open an account and save money. Uh, loans were provided at very fair rates and also financial literacy programs were um, put into place for people who, who wanted to learn about saving and investments and also the credit union worked to educate immigrant communities to avoid them being exploited by um, predatory lenders or by rent-a-centers or even these cash checking services that often charged up to 25% of um, the value of, of somebody's paycheck. Mm-hmm. And so this um, not only allowed people a safe place to keep their money, but it also helped spur business investments uh, and entrepreneurship among the immigrant community in particular. And over time, the word spread about the availability of this credit union and the fairness of it and the way that um, the the staff of, of the credit union respected all of the clients who came in and all the depositors, that it was like more of like a community than, you know, a kind of faceless bank. And more and more members of different immigrant communities began using it. And then increasingly, just anybody who wanted a place to put their money, <laughs> invest their money, started using it as well. And it is spread throughout the state with many different chapters. And there was... Um, um, fairly recently a study done that suggested a link between the presence of community credit unions and a low incidence of, um, of robberies. As you look at these two stories and, and so many of the others that you detail in Integration Nation, talk a little bit about what you see as the common threads that pull all of these together. Yeah, the common thread that pulls all these together, I mean, I think there's a couple. I mean, one is, like I talked about before, that sense among people, that optimism among people who, who aren't immigrants, who see or who have come to see um, demographic change um, in the form of immigration as a huge plus to them personally and to their communities. And then the second the second common thread is the understanding that we all live in this world together, that we depend upon each other, that we are connected, and that what is good for one defined community, say immigrants, is something that's good for all of us, and not just in economic terms, but in moral terms, in human terms, in spiritual terms. That, I would say, is the common thread that that binds all of these stories together. Another overlay of this is this debate that constantly goes on, this discussion that goes on between integration and assimilation. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So there's important differences between those two things. So assimilation is kind of the old form of thinking about when immigrants come 
came to the United States, they were expected to shed their culture, whether it was their worship traditions, their food traditions, their language, certainly their habits, um, whatever, whatever it might be, and begin to adapt to whatever the prevailing culture in the United States was. Right, and that was considered to be a vital and important process that immigrants were supposed to go through. Integration is different from that. Integration doesn't immediately value the norms and the expectations of the receiving community where immigrants are going to. It says to the immigrant person, look, Welcome to our community. We want to learn about who you are, what's shaped you and your values and your history. We accept you as you are, and we accept the reality that you are going to probably influence us, and we will probably influence you. It's a two-way street of understanding. Um, and it's also shown, especially for young people, there's a lot of evidence in the psychological literature to suggest that that attitude of accepting kids as they are and seeking to understand and be curious about um, their traditions and their culture and, and celebrating those differences and truly trying to understand where those differences come from at the same time, understanding and seeing and valuing our shared humanity is actually far more beneficial in terms of ensuring that this that the young person will stay engaged in the school institution and will um, get good grades and be able to go on to, to work or to college. Many of these stories really began long before the current wave of, of overheated and, and really hateful rhetoric that we've been hearing. What impact, if any, do you see that current rhetoric having on some of these positive efforts? Mm, I think it's really destructive. But at the same time, I don't think that the people who I've met, you know, on this cross-country journey writing this book will not be swayed and moved by that kind of rhetoric. Not only will they fight against it, they will also come up with constructive alternatives to it to exclusion, and that is inclusion and integration. So I know that there are people who will keep doing their work, and I don't think that it will affect the work that they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but it does, it does have a kind of chilling effect because it kind of closes down the, the debate and the discussion about immigration. It sort of shrinks the parameters of, of what's allowed to be talked about, and it also forces people who believe in integration and who believe that immigration is a positive for our country and believe in humane responses to immigration to go on the defensive. So to, to be against Donald Trump or to be against Rush Limbaugh instead of being affirmatively for something. And that's, I think, an important tension that we need to pay attention to. And it's really important to, even in the midst of this hatred and xenophobia that's being amplified by the media, is to stay aware of the need to be affirmative and to point to positive examples and alternatives to hatred and to exclusion. Does it also have, though, a, a chilling kind of ostracizing effect on those that are the leaders of these efforts? I don't know that it necessarily does. I mean, I think that to be able to start an effort like this, 
and to keep it going and to sustain it um, through all these sort of pendulum you know, shifts in attitudes and rhetoric and um, it speaks to a person's courage and strength and commitment. So I don't think it necessarily has a has a chilling effect on things that are that are going on. I think it does kind of cramp the dialogue and force people into spending energy uh, answering you know these ridiculous statements, mm-hmm. uh, and that is exhausting and draining and dispiriting. Um, but I think that immigration plays out locally. It plays out in communities. It plays out in church basements. It plays out in schools. It, it plays out in um, neighborhoods. It plays out in hospitals. You know, all these different institutions that we have that are mostly locally based, that's where immigration is playing out. It, it's not the, what people say on the national scale um, on the national level is one thing. And I think it's very hurtful to people who are immigrants and who've made their homes here and who want to be engaged and um, consider themselves full um, participating members in their communities, I think that that's extremely hurtful. But in terms of the people who are leading these efforts, I think that they're used to it and they will keep doing what they're doing. How much of these efforts are as a result of generational change? Um, hmm. That's a good question. I think that certainly um, the younger generation has more open and accepting attitudes than prior generations, for sure. I mean, all the survey data seems to bear that out. But my stories that, you know, that I chose to write about were people from all different generations who were embracing immigration and who were assisting and collaborating with immigrants um, and immigrants themselves from, you know, various generations as well. So I'm not sure... um, I think that when I look at the data on the survey that shows that, you know, the attitudes of young people are much less likely to be racially biased or to hold prejudice or, you know, believe in interracial marriage and there's more and more interracial marriage, I think that that's, I think that that's terrific and fabulous. But I also think it's important to pay attention to some of the structural inequalities and the laws and policies that create these divisions and these inequalities. And so I'm optimistic about the younger generations. I don't necessarily think that you have to be young to start an effort like this or be engaged in an effort like this. Susan Eaton, her book is Integration Nation, Immigrants, Refugees, and America at Its Best. Susan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thank you. It was really fun to be here. Thank you.